1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Stone. And today I have an exciting guest. I have Eric J. Dolan to talk about his very good book, Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution. It's published by LiveWrite, and it's just a terrific book. Eric, thanks so much for being on. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So first of all, I just, as we were talking about before the interview, I have never read such a comprehensive book about privateering. Like I said, in grad school, I had to, had done some research on privateers and nothing was as comprehensive as your book. So I really appreciate you doing the work to do this because I just found it fascinating. Well, that's great. It's accomplished
0: its goal. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So before we jump into the book, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. Well, I'm talking to you from Marblehead, Massachusetts, which is where I live, right on the, <clears throat> excuse me, right on the coast, a little bit north of Boston. I didn't set out in life to be a writer. It's actually a long and uh, I don't know if it's a torturous path, but a long path to getting to this point. Uh, essentially, when I was young, I was really into biology. Uh, I was nicknamed "Nature, Nature Boy," and I thought I was going to grow up and be a malacologist, somebody who studies seashells, or a marine biologist, because one of my idols was Jacques Cousteau. So I pursued that goal, uh, undergraduate, master's, and PhD in biology and environmental uh, policy. I sort of switched from biology to environmental policy, and I thought I wanted to be a professor of environmental policy, but something happened along the way, and that was beginning in high school, I started writing. I started writing op-eds. I I wrote a 150-page paper when I was a senior in high school on the mollusks of Long Island Sound, two chapters of which were published in magazine. All this writing that I was doing all the time, uh, that's what I really loved doing. Even when I was in graduate school, the thing that I loved most was researching and writing. Uh, When I got to the PhD level, I really didn't like the hypothesis testing i i just like the storytelling and all throughout into my early 30s i was always writing on the side writing you know short pieces articles and i started writing uh books books that nobody's ever heard of there i've written 15 books but most people have only heard of my last seven but the earlier books i started writing and by the time i was late 1990s i had gone through a series of jobs working for the government working for the national marine fisheries service actually that was later working for epa working for the national transportation safety board working for the national wildlife foundation uh, federation working for an environmental consultant in england and doing all these different things and i always liked uh writing i didn't really like other parts of the job so i decided i wanted to be a full-time writer and uh my wife said she was very supportive, she said, that's fine, but I had to put aside a year's worth of my salary before I could take the leap to become, so I kept writing books and uh, came out with a book called Leviathan, The History of Whaling in America, which is my first book with a major, <clears throat> major publisher, W.W. W. Norton, which is where I am now, Live Right is a part of W.W. W. Norton. So that book came out it did really well it got me a two book contract and then one night in the summer of 2007 my wife turned to me and said that I could quit my job and try this writing thing full time and it took me a while to screw up the courage but I finally quit the job and I started writing and I've been writing books ever since I just love history I like doing the research I like telling Stories, and I think that this is a uh, a positive story for those of you out there who want to be writers, but you haven't trained to be a writer, or necessarily even have a deep background in the subject you want to write about. I'm not a trained historian. I am an historian because I tell, I write books about history, and. I've received, my books have received academic awards, including popular awards, but I wasn't trained to be an historian. The last history class I took was, uh, you know, way back in college. So uh, (laughs) I think that passion and desire and some modicum of skill are what's really needed to pursue a career in writing. And that's what I've used to pursue this. And I've always liked the ocean. So it's sort of natural that a lot of my books, although not all of them, but a lot of my books revolve around the maritime theme. And one of the things that happens to you when you're a writer, I'm sorry, I'm coughing. I have allergies. But when you're a writer, uh, you get pigeonholed a little bit. So I've written so many books that have had a maritime theme. People often refer to me as a maritime historian. Uh, I think someday I'll, I'll surprise everybody and write a book that has nothing to do with the ocean. But uh, I, I like those stories. I, there's something about the ocean that's always drawn me in, uh, even though I'm not a sailor. But I spend a lot of time looking at the ocean, being on the beach, uh, swimming in the ocean and thinking about the ocean. So it, uh, it it works for me to write books that have a maritime theme. So that's sort of the short believe it or not, the short version of how I uh, became a writer. And I'll add one other thing, since when I do podcasts, I often get feedback from people who are interested in writing or at least want to understand about the writing process. And I guess I want to say two different things. One is that writing is like any other job. If you're going to do it well, you've got to put your mind to it and work hard. This is the hardest job I've ever had, but it's the most satisfying job i've ever had uh the other thing is you have to embrace failure Uh, i i there are i'm sure there are some writers out there that are overnight sensations right from the get-go i don't know them and most of the writers that i know are people that worked for many many years and have many many rejections before something finally clicked and then they were able to have a career, which is something that very few writers are able to have. Most writers either have another type of job or just doing it on the side. So I consider myself very fortunate to be in this position, but I also realized that it could end if people stop buying my books and that's, that's the end of it. And I have friends who are very good writers who started out with major publishers and their books sold worse and worse over time. And they ultimately uh, had to stop being full-time writers or they had to go to some other, uh, avenue to do their writing. So anyway, that's enough about me and my background.
1: <laughs> no, that's no, that's a great story. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, it's it's definitely encouraging to hear. And I think I mean, I'll speak for myself from reading your book. I think the one thing after reading Rebels at Sea was that, you know, it's a, definitely a scholarly book, but it's a very approachable book. It's something you could just pick up and start reading and then getting engrossed in the story. And I think that's just the best way sometimes to tell history is, you know, a lot of historians, uh, and, and, and it's not a bad thing, but they can get lost in the weeds of analytics and sometimes lose sight of the narrative, where I feel like you've balanced both very well, and it's a very well, approachable book.
0: Well, thank you. That's, I mean, that's that's my ultimate goal. I, I, I want to write books that are – I mean, my target audience is me, essentially. My target audience are people that don't necessarily know a lot about the topic because all my topics – are basically on books or subjects that I don't know a lot about before I start working on them. So I want to write a book that I would like to pick up and read, and I get bored fairly easily, so it has to have a strong narrative arc. It's got to pull you along. But also, I think because of my academic background, probably, I like to have some level of rigor, and I am hopeful, and I believe that most of my books have achieved this, and that's appealing both to the general reader. Uh, for a fun read, an informative read, but also appealing to academics. I know that a number of my books are used in college, high school, and even uh, junior high school classes. And I also, because I can look on my wall, I can see there are a number of awards that some of my books have gotten that have been from academic associations. So being able to combine both is you know, not always easy, but it is my goal.
1: That's great. So then you talked about how you got interested in maritime history, how you got interested in the ocean. Obviously, it sounds like from your biology background and just your your growing up background, but how did you get interested in American privateering?
0: Well, <laughs> the way that I find out book topics, it's sort of like brownie in motion. I knock into them. And often what causes me to think about a new book topic is the last book or one of the most recent books that I've worked on. And I wrote a book a few years ago. It came out in, what was it, 2018, a book called Black Flags, Blue Waters, The Epic History of America's Most Notorious Pirates. And in that book, which spans from the late 1600s roughly to the mid-1720s, I talk a lot about privateering And a lot about privateers who are privateers in name only. They're really pirates. And privateering has been around since the 13th century. And uh, European countries have used it properly, which is uh, in many instances, which is basically it's uh, when a government gives permission to private individuals uh to go out and attack enemy ships during times of war and bring those ships in and if they're legitimate prizes to sell the ships and their cargoes as the spoils of war and split them The proceeds between the owners of the vessels and the men who fought on board the vessels or the privateersmen. So uh, many European countries over the centuries used privateering properly, but many European countries also used privateering improperly, which is basically issuing letters of marque, these government uh, legal forms that make you a privateer issuing those letters of Mark when they're not at war with another country. And just basically like Sir Francis Drake was a great example with Queen Elizabeth I, uh, sending him forth to attack Spanish shipping and Spanish uh, prize galleons uh, full of loot in the Pacific ocean at a time when England and, and um, Spain were not at war. So even though he was, he had a letter of Mark and he was a privateer, he was really acting like a pirate and here in the United States, or in the colonies before they were in the United States, in the late 1600s, there were a number of privateers and letters of mark that were issued by American colonial governors in the late 1600s during King William's War to enable uh, American uh, men on board ships, on board "quote unquote" privateers, to go out and attack French ships because they were England was at war with France. But in fact, those privateers "quote unquote." went around Cape of Good Hope into the Indian Ocean, and they attacked Indian ships or Mughal ships transiting between Indian subcontinent and the Red Sea ports of Jeddah and Mocha and then brought all the loot back to the American colonies where they were welcomed with open arms. But England viewed them rather negatively because they were, in fact, pirates, and piracy was against the law. And these pirates, American pirates, were uh, attacking... Uh, the main money source for the British East India Company, which is trade with India. So what happened is in writing that book, Black Flags, Blue Waters, I, I was writing about a lot of people who were technically, they were supposedly privateers because they had letters of mark, but in fact, they were acting like pirates. And then there are even examples of ex-privateersmen after a war is over turning to piracy. And that's the example Uh, they think that Blackbeard, uh, that's what he did after the War of the Spanish Succession, which ended in 1713. He was summarily put out of work, if he in fact was a privateer, and we're not 100% sure, but he decided to go into piracy. So anyway, all these privateers being pirates got me thinking about, well, when else was privateering used? And A lot of my books have a chapter or sections on the American Revolution. I'd never written about privateering before, and I I knew almost nothing about it. But something in the back of my head said, I think there were privateers during the American Revolution. So I got a book and I started reading and I discovered, wow, there, there was a lot of privateering and it seems pretty important. It's not something that I read about while working on, you know, writing sections on the American Revolution. It's not something I learned in my high school class when we talked about the American Revolution, but it seemed pretty important. And even more importantly to me, these privateers and privateering during the American Revolution wasn't like the privateering I had written about in Black Flags, Blue Waters. These men were not legalized pirates. They were true privateers and they played an important role in winning the winning the war and I felt that was a fascinating story that hadn't been told in a comprehensive multifaceted way thereby leaving an opening for me.
1: Awesome. So getting to your crux of your book, so why were privateers instrumental in the fight for American independence?
0: Well, think about it. When the colonies decided to break free, even before they declared their independence, uh, they were going up against the most powerful nation in the world, of which they were a part, England. And England had an incredibly powerful Navy. Something like 270 uh, warships were available at the outset of the American Revolution. And here are the colonies that uh, have virtually no Navy at all. And, Privateering gives them an opportunity to get a cost-free Navy whipped up rather fast. Now, the Continental Congress uh, had a tough time herding together or getting the 13 colonies to row in one direction. They also were not able to levy taxes on the colonies, so they had limited resources. So even when the Continental Congress decided in October of 1775 to create its own Continental Navy, its own official Navy, that navy came to life uh, very haltingly and was not a very powerful navy, and its record during the American Revolution was pre- was not very enviable. Most of the ships were sunk or captured or returned to their owners or uh, set on set ablaze. So the Continental Congress was not. Uh, It it did some very good things during the American Revolution, but it was not a major thorn in the side of the British. However, privateering, by issuing letters of marque, you could quickly use the profit motive combined with the patriotic motive, because a lot of privateersmen, I believe, were very as patriotic as anybody else in the colonies. So you basically could tap the vessels that were already out there in the hands of deep-pocketed merchants transform their vessels into privateers, and men would want to serve on those vessels because of the possibility of earning a big payday. So in very short order, after privateering was made legal first in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and then New Hampshire, and then in early to mid, early 1776, Continental Congress allowed privateering in all the colonies, in very short order after issuing that law, there were first tens and then hundreds and then ultimately thousands of privateers, and they did cause problems for the British. They uh, captured on the order of 1,600 to 1,800 British ships. They caused insurance rates in Britain to rise precipitously. They made people in Britain w- war weary of, especially of all these losses. They contributed to bringing France into the war on the side of the Americans, which was a key turning point in the conflict on the domestic side or the domestic front. They brought in a lot of valuable, not only ships, but cargo and money and ammunition during the war They helped local port communities financially because these privateers had to be uh, not only manned, but outfitted and supplied. So it created a little industry. And those privateersmen that were lucky enough to be on a ship that captured British prizes earned money then in turn was shared with their family and gave a jolt to the local economy. Plus the success of privateers during the war, especially at the outset of the war gave Americans some confidence at a time when most of the news was really bad, uh, that they might actually win the war or that they were actually causing problems for the British. So, The privateers were, as I said, a cost-free Navy, and they were a militia of the sea. And in the absence of a powerful continental Navy, privateering was our best available option to not only irritate but cause real pain in Britain. And part of the goal of any war is to cause enough pain to your enemy that they decide to sue for peace or give up. And privateers helped along that
1: path. Uh, interesting. So if privateering was such a valuable resource during the American Revolution, in your book you talk about that it was also considered controversial, even in some among some of the founding fathers. So why was that?
0: Well, there are a couple of reasons. There's no doubt that privateering, because of the financial motivation uh, involved and the less rigorous... Uh, rules that uh, were on privateers as compared to uh, state navies or the Continental Navy, that a lot of men, especially sailors, chose to become privateersmen instead of going to the Continental Navy. So there was a drain on the resources of the Continental Navy. So that is a that was a real issue, and it bothered a lot of people, especially those people who were officers in the Continental Navy who wanted to beef up their ranks. Um, privateering was also a problem because it had a perception problem. As I mentioned, privateering in before the American Revolution, going back to the 1200s, there are just numerous examples – of quote-unquote privateers acting just like pirates. So a lot of people reflexively thought of privateers as pirates, even though in this case they were not. And some people, especially the founding fathers and some of the elites, viewed fighting in the war as, or the war being propelled by what were called Republican virtues, which is basically putting public need and the public good out ahead of any private profit profit or private incentives. Essentially, you should be fighting in the revolution on behalf of the colonies because it was your civic duty, not because you were going to earn money. And those people who wanted to earn money as well as fight for the country for patriotic reasons were somehow looked at as less than, uh, virtuous Republicans, but the truth is every single part of the American war effort, the Continental Navy, the Continental Army, state navies, all of these forces, none of those men would have served in those forces had there not been the opportunity to also make money because if you're in the Continental Navy, you've got a cut of the prizes that you captured. You also got a base salary. If you're in the Continental Army, You were supposed to be paid and they used cash incentives and bonuses of land to try to keep people fighting. And even with that, people kept deserting the Continental Army. And George Washington, who was a big fan of Republican virtues and doing the right thing and carrying out your civic responsibility for your country to be, he was smart enough to realize that you could not wage a war more than a few months long if you didn't give people a financial stake in the outcome. You can't rely just on their patriotism. You also have to talk to them at the level that is important and motivating, and that is what's in it for me. So there were a lot of there were a lot of mixed reasons why people look down their noses at privateers but I think the point that I make in the book, and hopefully I make it very well, it was one of the most fun parts of the book for me to write, was how privateersmen were really not so different from their peers. And I think that it is an incorrect view of them to think that they were just motivated by profit. And as I said before, I believe that they were motivated by profit and patriotism, and in that, they were very much like all of their peers in the American Revolution. So you sh- if you're going to ding privateersmen for being motivated by money, then you've got to ding everybody else for being motivated by money as well.
1: <laughs> so who are some of the people or types of people that became privateers?
0: Well, I... You know, back then, it is true, people didn't live as long and uh, sort of sailing and going to sea, unless you were a captain or a first mate, was sort of a young man's game anyway. And the average age of people in the colonies was fairly young as well. So most of the privateersmen were in their late teens to mid-20s, and that's comparable to the age of most of the men in the Continental Navy and the Continental Army, who they were most of them, by dint of them having to go to sea, most of them were sailors. Most of them were merchant mariners before the war, or they were fishermen. They were people who knew their way around a vessel and knew what life on the wave was was like. And that's clearly most of them. However, the privateering laws required that one-third of the men on board each privateer be a landsman or somebody that had no naval background We have no way of knowing, or I don't know, how many, whether that one-third requirement was actually met. I I doubt it. However, we do know that many uh, farmers and many people who had never been to sea did join privateers in the hope of striking it rich and also fighting for their country. And many of them probably experienced, like other green hands, severe bouts of seasickness and, and disorientation when they went to sea for the first time before they got their sea legs and knew their way around, uh, the, the vessel. So, and as to who they were, most of them, again, below the level of captains and first mates and officers, most of them were from the bottom rungs of society. They weren't the, for the most part, the the sons of the elites. And they were all men. We have no real record of any woman who became a privateer, who, 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 who was on a privateer during the American Revolution, although I'd love to have found an example of that because people are always fascinated by women, you know, women being pirates, women fighting in the American Revolution in the army, which did happen. Deborah Sampson was an example of that, but I was unable to find any example of a woman who fought on a... Uh, on a privateer. But so they, they, you know, they, they came from all, all over the place, different backgrounds. Some were English, some were French, some were Spanish. I mean, of of descent because the American colonies were a polyglot community. They weren't just one. They sort of had, uh, you know, strains of almost all the European countries were, could be found in the colonies, but most of them were poor. And then if you, uh, got higher up on the food chain, and you're talking about the captains of privateers, most of them were probably earlier captains of merchant ships. And uh, so they were uh, higher on the societal rung, and so were their first mates and other officers. Uh, and in fact, there was a lot of intermingling, or intermingling is not the right word, there was a lot of crossover between the Continental Navy and uh, privateering at the highest level. So a lot of captains of privateers would later become commanders of Continental Navy vessels and vice versa. And the reason for that was that a lot of There were so few Continental Navy vessels and there were so many potential naval officers that there weren't enough berths for them. There weren't enough spots for them to fill on the Continental Navy ships. So people who we still remember today, like John Barry and Stephen Decatur, Sr. and uh, Thomas Truxton and other people who became very famous in naval history, uh, they were captains or commanders of continental Navy vessels for a time, but when there was no ship for them to head up, they didn't just sit around. Many of them decided to hop on to a privateer and serve their country in that way.
1: Awesome. Now, one of the most captivating parts of your book that I found very interesting were the dangers faced by these American privateers, You know, things that you don't really think about, but you go into detail. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Sure. Well, at its base, whenever you step on a ship during this era, even without a war, uh, and go to sea there were a lot of inherent dangers and discomforts i mean some of the dangers were they didn't have gps back there they didn't have they didn't have good weather forecasting they may run into a tempest or hurricane that could destroy the ship they may be thrown off course they may be in an area that doesn't have good charts uh they may not be that hot or good with their navigation and they may end up in the wrong Place They may be at sea and run out of food. And even if they don't run out of food, the food that they had on board and the water was often miserable, tasted of bad, rotted over time. So going to sea in the mid 1700s, mid to late 1700s, even without a war raging, was a uh, potentially dangerous and certainly could be unpleasant uh, affair. And it was even worse on privateers because one of the things that privateers uh, had is a lot of crew because when a privateer was out at sea and it captured a prize, it would have to send that prize back into port to be adjudicated in the court of vice admiralty. In order to send a ship back, you had to take some of the men on the privateer, appoint a prize master, put them on the captured ship, and let those guys sail the ship back to port while the privateer continued – to hunt British merchant ships and perhaps British warships if they came upon them. So you started out with a very large crew. You could have a 70 foot uh, you know, brig or snow or ship, and you might have 110 people on board. So it was very crowded. Uh, if it was in the summer, it could be very hot below decks. You know, you slept wherever you could. So again, the point is, Going to sea could be a miserable experience when you get when you add the war, not only do you have a overcrowded ship, but you also are potentially going into harm's way. One thing that people don't realize is that even before the war but especially during the war, British merchant ships were armed before the war American ma- merchant ships were often armed. They didn't have heavy armaments like privateers but They could run across some bad actors on the open ocean, so they had to be able to defend themselves if necessary. Now, during the American Revolution, a lot of the British merchant ships that were sent out had extra armaments. Some of them could be 300-ton ships with 25 cannons, so they were a formidable foe, and these privateers were going out to attack merchant ships. And every once in a while, they would run across a British warship. So there was the potential to get into a fight and lose, and in the process, you lose your life. And what's even worse, and one of the stories that I talk about extensively in the book that many people don't realize is that if you were captured, if you were a pri- on a privateer and you were captured, the odds are you would be sent to One of the prisons in England, which weren't that bad, they could be bad, but most people and most privateersmen were sent to the prison ships in New York City, which was essentially for most people, a death sentence. And somewhere between 11,000 and 22,000 men were sent to these prison ships uh, moored in Wallabout Bay, right off New York City. And... The number of people that died was astronomical on the Jersey, which was called Hell Afloat, one of the, lar- the largest prison ship. At any one time, there were between 850 and 1,200 people on board. And every day between six and 12 people died. And during the course of the war, it's estimated the 11,500 men on board the Jersey died. And most of them were privateersmen. So not only was there danger at sea if you encountered a powerful foe? And I do have a number of stories in the book about battles between uh, American privateers and British merchant ships and British warships where a number of people were killed or maimed. But not only did you face danger at sea, if you were captured, then The odds are, especially if you were a privateer, privateersman, and and the British hated privateersmen and viewed them as pirates, even though they didn't hang them, which is the traditional punishment for piracy. Uh, But anyway, if you were a privateersman, you'd be sent to these prison ships, which was, as I mentioned, virtually a death sentence for most people. So there were a lot of dangers. It took a lot of guts in the American Revolution to fight in the Navy, in the Army, to fight on privateers. And uh, it's it, it's really uh, impressive. And uh, I have a lot of admiration for the people of that generation. And I often wonder what would have happened if I had been alive during the American Revolution? Would I have fought for my country to be? I like to think that I would have. Uh, but I could tell you for sure that being a writer is a lot safer and easier than <laughs> fighting in a revolution for your country. Those guys uh, and the women who supported them had a lot of guts.
1: Oh, yeah, it's certainly courageous. So as you mentioned in your book, there was an imbalance of favor for the American privateers as you talk about. Why Why was that? Because, I mean, like you're saying they're going up against – is almost insurmountable odds it sounds like. Yet you're arguing that there kind of was an imbalance of power or for in favor of the American privateers.
0: Well, there were just so many of them sent out. I mean the British sent out privateers too to attack the Americans, but they sent out they they actually issued more letters of mark, but they didn't have as much success. The British captured around six hundred American ships during the American Revolution, British privateers, but Americans captured around sixteen hundred to eighteen hundred. So the, the imbalance in favor of the Americans, in a sense, was just there were so many American privateers, some of them, like the Hulk,er out of Philadelphia, mm-hmm. one of the most successful privateers. It alone captured 72 British prizes over the span of four years. So it was a relatively small number of very successful privateers that racked up some of the huge uh, numbers. Uh, but, it, <laughs> you know... In terms of the American Revolution and helping to win and causing all the problems that I cited earlier, privateers did an excellent job. But when you think about it from the level of the privateersmen, the people out, the person out there fighting, it was a dubious endeavor. It's sort of like going into a casino and thinking you're going to win. Most people lose and the the, the deck is stacked against you. And truth be told, most privateersmen... Um, did not come back rich. Enough did, and there were enough successful privateers that people continued to join privateers throughout the war, and more and more letters of marque were issued, and they did a lot of damage. But an awful lot of uh, privateersmen who came back and survived their voyages didn't come back with a lot of money in their pockets. Some did. But what's even worse, and as I mentioned before, a significant number of privateersmen uh, died on prison ships. So it it was very, very dangerous from the level of being a privateersman. But in terms of the activity and its role in helping win the American Revolution, then it was definitely a big plus where it could have been a big minus for the individual privateersmen, depending on the course that their personal war
1: took fascinating stuff again i'm talking with uh, eric j dolan about his book rebels at sea privateering in the american revolution published by live right publishing which is a as you were saying it's a, a division of w.w. W. norton again fantastic book eric thanks so much for coming on but before we let you go what are you working on now and what can we expect to learn from you in the future since you're such an avid writer
0: <laughs> okay, first I have to correct one pronunciation. It's it's not live right. It's live right. That's oh, how it's live tend, right. Okay, that's how they tend to pronounce it. But it, it's it's an it's uh, it's an imprint of WW Norton, and it's a very oh. famous old publisher that published a lot of super famous authors in the early twentieth century, and then it was resuscitated by WW Norton as one of their. Imprints. But yeah, as I mentioned before, uh, being a writer is just a job uh, like any other job. And I sign contracts and I have deadlines and I am working on another book right now. And it does have a maritime theme. It's essentially a book about five men, two Americans and three British men who are intentionally marooned on the Falkland Islands for uh, more than a year and a half during the War of 1812. And it's a story of what led up to that, what happened during their time on the islands, how they were rescued, and how it all relates to not only uh, the war and the fight between the Americans and the British, but also to uh, treachery and dishonor. So that's the book that I'm working on right now. I'm doing research. I'm just starting to write it. And uh, I am hopeful and I fully expect that after that, there will be other books as to what their topics will be. I have no idea right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I will, I will add that, I mean, I give, I give a lot of talks on my books. I still have another probably 15 talks to give on Rebels at Sea. I've probably given about 30 or so uh, this past summer. And because uh, that's one of the ways that a writer can sort of get the word out about their their book. But I, I do want to give one plug, not for one of my talks, but uh, if you're at all interested in what you heard during this podcast and you want to find out more about Rebels at Sea or any of my other books, I encourage you to go to my website for a very specific reason. First, my website's address is www dot Eric J. Dolan that's e-r-i-c-j-a-y-d-o-l-i-n.com and the reason i'm sending you there is because i have the introductory chapter for each one of my books is on the website so you can actually read the first chapter of rebels at sea or any of my other books and then you could decide whether that is interesting enough for you to want to continue reading. And there's also information about the talks. Maybe I'm giving a talk near you. And, uh, and if you're interested in ordering a signed copy of one of my books, especially for a gift, uh, I tend to sell a lot of them around the holidays. There's also information there about how to get a signed copy. So, you know, I wouldn't have been a good author if I didn't plug that stuff (laughs) at the end, because the the only way that I continue writing uh, is if my books continue selling.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, we obviously very much appreciate it. And no, it was great talking to you. And the topic of your next book sounds awesome as well. So I can't wait to see that one.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you very much.
1: All right. Thanks.